He resets Starks. They are going to bring pressure again. Rodgers is going to roll away. Throws it up in the air. Says a prayer. And Janice does all stop it. Please. What a catch. That's insane. Coming at you from the Wee Desert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 26 of The Weekly Brew. I'm Austin Statton, joined alongside Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. If you watched the NFL playoffs this past weekend, you probably recognize the NBC Sports audio from Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth. It was a remarkable finish, and we'll dive into that in just a few minutes as we sit down with NFL writer John McClain. Guys, I enjoyed seeing both of you this week at our Chiefs-Patriots watch party. Hopefully you enjoy the queso. How are you guys doing tonight? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I uh, just got back from the uh, University of Connecticut game. I was covering U of H. Uh, anybody that follows my work on HCN, that's your Houston news, can certainly read my coverage there. But uh, discouraging loss uh, for my Cougars uh, by 12, but uh, great attendance of the game. So they're kind of turning that program around and getting Hoffines uh, a little more energy than there has been in the past. So I'm, I'm down in spirits, both because I was at that game and because that game caused me to miss the interview with the general, John. McLean, which uh, I heard some of the audio of before we went live here. So that's a terrific interview, and I was uh, sad not to be a part of it. We definitely missed you, but uh, Jeremy and I definitely enjoyed speaking with John McLean. Again, you'll hear that here in just a few minutes. Now, Jeremy, I understand you actually stopped by our sponsor, We Desserts, this weekend. Is that correct? I did. I stopped by We here last night. Um, after finding the place, I, I had a couple of their chocolate chip cookies, which I cannot speak more highly of. I generally try to stay away from bakeries. Uh, because they're not good for my waistline, but uh, we is not one of those places I will be able to stay away from. Very good cookies, uh, very friendly service. I definitely recommend them. It's worth mentioning that uh, February 1st, they'll be celebrating their two-year anniversary, and I've been told uh, from a very reliable source uh, who owns the bakery, so very reliable, that all desserts are going to be $2 that day. So they're having, uh, I think like a DJ may be there or some catering, some sort of event. Uh, details are forthcoming, but uh, if you drop by on February 1st, at 3411 Kirby, uh, we desserts will be very cheap, uh, cheap desserts and very good ones as well. So, uh, and you can make some new friends. They're very friendly people. Glad you enjoyed We Desserts, Jeremy. Uh, as always, we thank We Desserts for sponsoring the podcast. You can, again, you can find them at 3411 Kirby here in Houston. Also, we want to make sure that you uh, you can find us on social media. You can search for uh, Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us on our website at weeklybrewcast.com. And last but not least, we want you to go to iTunes, subscribe, give us five-star reviews, tell us what you like, what you don't like. Actually, Kevin will le- read some of our latest reviews here at the end of the show. And uh, be sure to go ahead and like us on Facebook because we've had some really stirring discussions uh, with some people proposing some very good ideas, some people proposing very bad ones, but a lot of discussion, a lot of commentary on the Facebook site. So search for us, The Weekly Brew on Facebook, and uh, like us there and join the discussion. As always, we have a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, grab a drink, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. While the college football season came to a close last week with Nick Saban and Alabama clinching the program's 16th football title, the NFL postseason is in full swing, and perhaps one of the more entertaining finishes that I've witnessed occurred on Saturday night as the Cardinals edged the Packers in overtime behind a magical performance by Larry Fitzgerald. 
Now joining us on the Weekly Brew is the General, John McClain, who has covered the NFL for the Houston Chronicle for more than 35 years. John, thanks for taking the time to join us on the podcast. And I'm curious, where does Saturday's game rank among the all-time finishes that you've covered? This is my 37th year of covering the NFL, and I've seen a lot of tremendous finishes in the playoffs. And that one was right up there with it. You know, confusing coin toss that allowed Arizona to get the ball to start the overtime. The two plays to Larry Fitzgerald is as good as any receiver in the playoffs in history. And, of course, Aaron Rodgers throwing another Hail Mary pass. So that's one of the reasons I would rather cover the NFL than any sport is because no matter who it is or what time of the year, there's always something happening that you haven't seen before, no matter how long you watch this great sport. It was kind of remarkable to watch that game. I mean, it was almost mediocre play for both teams until, you know, almost the final four minutes of regulation. In, in terms of watching that game, what does that do from the fans' perspective? I know the NFL is, you know, sort of a made-for-TV product now, uh, but does that just add into that? Carolina's 15-1 and one and has played a lot of close games, but they've blown out a lot of people. Arizona's blown out a lot of people. I said before the playoffs, I thought Arizona would go back to Carolina for a chance to get redemption for losing in the second round last season. So I thought the Cardinals would win the game. I thought it would be close. I believe I picked it three or four, but I had no idea it would come down to that kind of ending. Now, Arizona did not play anywhere near uh, as well as it's capable of playing. The Packers seem to have rediscovered their offense in uh, Washington when they beat the Redskins in the wild card round. You know, they when you've got a great quarterback, generally you rise and fall on the way that quarterback plays. And uh, Aaron Rodgers has made so many big plays throughout the year, throughout his career. You know, he completed as many Hail Marys, I believe three this season, counting that playoff game as the rest of the league combined. And a lot of that is just luck, but he's been able to do it. Next time he has a Hail Mary next year, people are not going to go to the bathroom or the concession stand <laughs> home. They're going to be watching Aaron Rodgers because he proved that he could do it. But I also believe Arizona is going to have to play a whole lot better to beat Carolina because Arizona has been, to me, the best team in the league on both sides of the ball. Bruce Arians has just been a fabulous coach when nobody would have predicted it. He was being put out to pasture by the Steelers when Chuck Pagano called him and asked him to be his offensive coordinator, and the rest is coaching history. But it's going to be hard for any game to duplicate the ending of of the uh, Cardinals' victory over the Packers. Definitely quite the finish there. But one of the other big stories that emerged this week was uh, the NFL owners met in Houston and approved the relocation request for the Rams to move from St. Louis to Los Angeles. It seems like the NFL almost needs Los Angeles, but I'm curious, does Los Angeles need the NFL? And what are some of your thoughts about that move? First of all, I I don't think the NFL needs Los Angeles. The NFL's been without L.A. and they're making record amounts of money. They draw a record number of viewers that are more popular today than they've ever been. I've often wondered why they would sell their soul to the devil to go back to Los Angeles because so much of L.A. is meeting the move with a big yawn. 
The reason the Raiders and the Rams left, and I was traumatized when they left, because that means the Chronicle didn't pick up any more tabs for me to go out to L.A. to cover games. <laughs> and when they left, we were devastated. And one of the reasons they left is a team out there has got to be entertaining. It's got to have pizzazz. And they've got a coach, Jeff Fisher, that can that knows how to move a franchise because he did it from Houston to Nashville. Jeff's also really good with the media. Went to USC, uh, married a Rose Bowl queen, uh, grew up in the L.A. area. So he is an ideal coach to go there. The problem is his offense is awful. Case Keenum's quarterback. They've got to get a quarterback that's got some pizzazz, a quarterback who will sell tickets, a quarterback who can get the media away from the Lakers and the Dodgers and the Clippers and all the other sports they have there, a quarterback who can get the fans off the beaches, get the fans to get out of the traffic. And that's something that the Rams don't have. Now, the Chargers are going to go there, too. They're working on the lease. The lease is being negotiated by the NFL, not Stan Kroenke, the Rams owner, so it'll be fair. And I believe they'll pay $1 a year in rent. But no way the Chargers give the Rams a year head start and get all the sponsors and the sweet holders and the club ticket <clears throat> buyers. They both need to go at the same time. And San Diego is closer. The Chargers are a better team. They lost, I believe, eight games by a touchdown or less. And they do have a quarterback with pizzazz in Phillip Rivers. If you put Rivers on the Rams, it would be a different story. But I believe it's going to be a hard sell. Even though the building will be the greatest greatest edifice on the face of the earth and will serve, serve multi-purposes and cost more than $2 billion when all is said and done, if you don't put an exciting, entertaining team in there, it'd be like having a, a, a top-of-the-line Mercedes with a Volkswagen body, and it's just not going to go. And who's going to want to drive it? People are going to vote with their feet. You know, they're either going to come to the games where they can see an exciting game or they're not. Um, John, kind of switching gears here to talk about the Raiders. Um, is there any truth to the report posted by Fox Sports last week that the Raiders could end up in San Antonio? Or do you think that Bob McNair and Jerry Jones might block such a move? Yeah, no way the Raiders are going to L.A. As soon as the Raiders were left out and they re- re- withdrew their relocation fee during that 12-hour meeting that I attended, they they knew they were being the odd man out. And um, Mark Davis doesn't have multi-billions like Rams owner Stan Kroenke. Mark Davis goes back to Oakland with his hat in his hand. Now, the NFL is giving him $100 million. It's not a loan. It's just, hey, here's $100 million. See if it'll help you get a stadium. The problem is they don't want to put in any tax money into that stadium. Well, I think ultimately what could happen is the $100 million they were giving the Chargers for the same reason, just give $200 million to Oakland. See if that helps toward getting a 60,000-seat stadium. It doesn't need to be elaborate. What I suggested is because the Warriors are moving to downtown San Francisco, tear down the Warriors building, tear down the Coliseum, let the two NFL teams play in Santa Clara and – I mean, let the NFL team play in Santa Clara. And next door, have a 35,000-seat stadium for the A's, have a 60,000-seat stadium for the Rams, I mean, the Raiders, put them next to each other, have the same company build both. And because he's got two projects, 
but you should get a super discount, especially because of the publicity you're going to get, and see if that $200 million wouldn't wouldn't make a nice dent into the fee. Then you charge PSL, and you use the PSL money to pay off the debt as they did in Carolina. It's too bad taxes don't go there like Houston built the stadium on long-term auto rental and hotel motel. Cleveland built his on syntax. Liquor and cigarettes, Baltimore beat there, built theirs on sports lotteries. So there's a lot of ways you can do it that that don't doesn't mean your locals are going to be taxed. But in California, you hear the word taxed, you know, you run in the other direction. But as far as San Antonio, the NFL determined a long time ago when they built the Alamo Dome that they didn't have enough money for the sponsorship suites, club seats, the per capita income wasn't high enough to put a team there. And just because Red McComb says we'll build you a stadium doesn't mean you've got the finances, doesn't mean you have the location. There's a lot of things that go into that. And if it came down to it, San Antonio is a cowboy stronghold to a lesser extent, the Texans, and I do not believe Jerry Jones and Bob McNair, both of whom are very powerful and influential in the NFL would allow a team to go there, even if the Raiders really wanted to, but they don't. What was it, last year, the year before, the Falcons announced that they were building a a brand new stadium, Uh, and then obviously with the uh, NFL not having a franchise in Los Angeles for the past 20 years, it seems like teams have almost used the threat of moving to Los Angeles to get funding from a stadium, whether it's public tax dollars or uh, anything along that nature. Do you think that this could be kind of a shift in the thought process in the NFL that, you know, there's no longer that threat to move to Los Angeles now that there are going to be two franchises out there? And how do you see this playing out with uh, possible new stadium deals in in the future? First of all, way before the L.A. situation, there was Jacksonville. Jacksonville wanted a franchise, and everybody that wanted a stadium used Jacksonville. Then there was Memphis, and everybody wanted a stadium. Talk about Memphis was going to tear down the Liberty Bowl and build a new stadium. So you always need one. The next one won't be San Antonio. It'll be St. Louis, probably, possibly San Diego. And here's why. Every team, every city that loses a team, the politicians play hardball, and they were down their chest about the money they didn't put out for stadiums. Well, where does that money then go? It doesn't go anywhere. And so those politicians get voted out of office. And then a new group of politicians come in and say, we got to get the NFL back there. Let's rally the troops. So then they approve public, public money to help build a new stadium. I think St. Louis has got a much better chance. St. Louis stole the Cardinals. From uh, Chicago, they stole the Rams from L.A., so now they can steal somebody else. They could be the next one. In fact, if Mark Davis didn't get what he wanted from Oakland, maybe San Diego would reach out. If not San Diego, I could see St. Louis being the city that went after the Raiders. Uh, John, turning back to the Texans for a moment, after uh, what was an embarrassing first-round exit in the, the franchise slated to pick up the number 22 spot in the upcoming draft, um, do you think this is a place where O'Brien can find a QB, or does the team try and fill other needs in that slot? They need a quarterback. Everybody knows it. They've needed one all year. They've needed one for years, and they're going to get a quarterback. Now, the key is 
do they get one there? Do they have to trade up? You can trade up probably from 22 to round 10 and not have to mortgage your future. You couldn't trade up into the top five. That would take too much. And it depends on the quarterback he likes. He may not like the one everybody else likes. You know, Bill O'Brien is always talking about leadership. The guy's got to be smart so he can make decisions at the line of scrimmage. And, of course, he's got to be accurate. At this time of the year, it's all about size and arm strength. In the NFL, size and arm strength are not nearly as important as decision-making and accuracy. And that's what makes them go. So Bill O'Brien may look for a quarterback that's not your conventional guy, even though he does like size and mobility. And everybody talks about Christian Hackenberg of Penn State. Well, he could get into the second or third round. Well, depends on where they're ranked at number one. There's no guarantee you can get anybody anywhere unless you have that first pick. And if they say, well, Bill O'Brien could get Ackenberg in the second round, well, how do you know somebody else wouldn't take him in the second round? I think if you have a quarterback you like, you do whatever it takes to get that quarterback. I think at this point, with the Texans' defense being as good as it is and not having a glaring need like offense, I think that if you have to trade the number one pick, I'd trade number one pick in a heartbeat and hope that pick was like you were in the playoffs again and it was a lower number one because they got to do – they're not going to do like uh, Washington did. People always say Washington gave up three number ones. Well, one of those was a swap. So it's not really three number ones. It was two number ones. They're not going to do that. But I could see them trading a future number one, maybe a lesser pick this year, because they know they've got to have it. Now, they've got a lot of other needs besides quarterback, but no more of this retread, no more of this quarterback by committee. They've got to get a guy that they think can be their franchise quarterback whenever Bill O'Brien believes he's ready to play. I believe it was Nick Wright or John Lopez on Wednesday or Thursday in Sports Radio 610 here in Houston said that with the emergence of Whitney Merciless this season and Jadavion Clowney kind of struggling with injuries the first two years and a lot of teams still high on that potential, do you see a, a possibility that maybe the Texans can try to a package Clowney in a trade opportunity to move up in the draft? Well, what would you give for Clowney? Here's a guy that's been hurt for two years. He played the run really well when he was healthy this year. He improved as a pass rusher. But what would you give up for him? Would you give up? Would you take him and get let a team get a quarterback? I don't think so. And based on what they saw at Clowney this year, they have no interest in trading him. And uh, they would – because there's nobody's going to say, yeah, we'll take Jadavia and Clowney over an extra draft choice. It's just not going to happen. And the reason is – strictly because of the injuries. When he's been healthy, considering he was coming off microfracture surgery on his knee, and most of us didn't think we would sit Clowney until 2016, they were not unhappy with his play. They're disappointed that he can't stay on the field. One of the things coming up here in the NFL besides the Super Bowl is in just a few weeks, the Hall of Fame will announce the 2016 inductees, and there are several well-qualified candidates, including uh, Brett Favre, as a member of the uh, Hall of Fame committee, what is that process like for you to determine you know, which of these athletes, which of these legends is ultimately enshrined in Canton? It's the greatest honor you could ever have. Um, I'm on the Hall of Fame selection committee. I'm on the senior senior selection committee where we uh, go into the senior nominees and 
recommend on alternate years one or two for the full membership to vote on Mazzone and Texas Sports Hall of Fame Selection Committee. And all of those are an incredible honor. They are an unbelievable, um, let's see, I know it's, it's, it's an unbelievable thing knowing what it means to the people involved to be part of that process. And you're always going to make somebody unhappy, whether it's people get left out, the fans, the teams, but boy, the ones that get in, watching them after they're told that they're in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, it's just it's, it's given me goosebumps for 22 years. I've seen some of the toughest players and coaches turn to mush as soon as they find out they've been immortalized. And it's a long process that we take seriously for year-round, and then we meet at the Super Bowl day before, and uh, they announce the Hall of Fame that, that late that night now. And it's an unbelievable experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Speaking of specific people uh, <clears throat> that are getting into the Hall of Fame this year, is there one person not in the Hall of Fame right now that you've highly advocated for or believe should be there? There he is, Robert Brazil, Oilers outside linebacker who's in the senior group. I have been pushing for Robert uh, as the last Oiler, worthy of being in the Hall of Fame. Last one was Carly Culp. He got in three years ago, so I'm hoping – Robert Brazil gets in, and when he does, my work for the Oilers will be done. <laughs> this year, we, we nominated – he was a finalist, and we cut the list down to two, and he was the third one that's close to Ben. So I, I'm hoping like crazy he'll make it in the next couple of years. One of the things that you mentioned just a little bit earlier is that you are on the committee for the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. When I think Texas sports, one of the first names that comes to mind is uh, Dave Campbell, uh, who's a Waco legend. I'm curious, as a fellow Baylor grad, you, you got your start working for Dave back with the Waco Trib. What kind of impact did Mr. Campbell have on the development of your career as a sports writer? Let me tell you guys a story. When I was a senior in high school in Waco, after my senior year, I was working at Goldstein McGill's Men's Department. And one night, right before closing, a woman came in, started looking through men's shirts, and I went over and asked her if I could help her, and she said she was looking for her husband some shirts because he didn't like to shop. And she was asking me some questions about how old I was, where I went to school. I told her I was going to McLennan Junior College and hoped to take classes that would transfer to Baylor, and she asked me what I won't do, and I told her I didn't have a clue, but I'd like to do something in sports. She said, why? I said, she said, what sport? I said, well, I don't know. I love a lot, but football's my favorite. I said, I know more football than anybody in Waco. She said, is that right? I said, yes, ma'am, I do. Football's been my love since I was four years old. She said, and you more, know more than anybody in Waco? I said, yes, ma'am, I do. And uh, she said, well, how did you acquire all this knowledge? And I said, well, every morning I'll read the Waco Tribune, and then every afternoon, I read the Waco Times Herald. My family takes both papers, and I read all the writers, and I've been reading Dave Campbell since I was old enough to remember. And she says, that's so. She said, well, I can't find a shirt, but i tell you what, I'm going to bring my husband tomorrow, and I might make him try on a couple. Will you be working? I said, yes, ma'am. So right before closing, the next night, here she comes dragging her husband by the ear. He'd rather have been getting a proctology exam. <laughs> Yeah, they're <laughs> close. 
So she's rattling through the shirts. Said, "Honey, this is a young man I told you about. He didn't remember." Finally, she said, "Young man, this is my husband, Dave Campbell." And I said, "Oh, how did I?" said, uh, 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 "Dave Campbell," and uh, she says, "Yeah, my husband. I told my husband." He said, "You know more football than anybody in in Waco, and it's all because you're reading Dave Campbell." Well, I couldn't. I was like Porky Pig. I was like, duh, 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 duh. <laughs> and, and I've told him this story a million times, and he doesn't remember it. And the reason was he didn't want to be looking at shirts. He said, "He said, how are you, young man?" Shook my hand, said, "Reba, get those shirts and let's get out of here. I'm busy." <laughs> so that was my initial uh, introduction to Dave Campbell, and then Hollis Biddle, his right hand man, actually hired me when I was a sophomore in 1973, and um, Dave was like a god for us when he would come in. He was so busy with Texas football and writing and writing his columns five times a week, and his phone would constantly ring. Right when you'd have a conversation started, his phone would ring, and he'd get up and go to his office. And when he would come in, we didn't say a word because we'd want to listen to his stories. And now I'm really good friends with Dave. He's 91 and still going strong. I was just in... Waco with the Texas Sports Hall of Fame recognized him for the Red McCombs Award, and it was something else. And um, he is he is uh, one of the true icons of Texas journalism, along with people like Blackie Sherrod, Kern Tibbs, Mickey Erskowitz, uh, some of the all-time greats in print and broadcasting. Talking about Texas football and in uh, Waco, kind of brings to mind Baylor. And as a fellow, fellow Baylor grad, um, what can you tell me, uh, like, what's your take on uh, Art Bryles as head coach of Baylor and, and our, uh, the recent success that Baylor's had on the field? When I was going to Baylor, Baylor was so bad, they were talking about dropping football. And in 1972, they were the worst team in the country, and their first nine choices to be the head coach turned them down. I remember the, there was a show you how bad Baylor was. New Mexico was a better program, and Baylor thought it had hired New Mexico coach Rudy Feldman. It got out. Rudy Feldman going to wake up. Well, he even backed out. And then they got stuck with their 10th choice, Grant Teeth. Everybody talked about Grant Teeth because nobody had a clue how to pronounce his name. <laughs> and I remember I went to a church where he spoke one night because Grant at that time was going, he'd speak at gas stations, churches, you know, he'd speak at a rally by uh, uh, by Dairy Queen because he was trying to drum up support. Finally, people figured out his name was Taft, and uh, he thought he was not going to get hired because when he went to his interview, he took it to his house. Jack Patterson and Taft realized when he went there with his wife, Donnell, he had stepped in dog poop and tracked it in on Jack Patterson's white shag rug. So Taft thought if Patterson saw that, he was going to not get the job. So he had his wife distract him when he told the Pattersons he had to use a restroom, when in fact he had to go in there and scrub and get that dog mess off his white shag carpet. Obviously, Patterson never saw it because he got hired. And that became the glory days of Baylor football again. And then when Grant retired and beat Texas for the last time, and then they went through a series of coaches where the program was bad again, never thought about dropping it like they did before. 
And when I knew Art Browse of Houston, and I told him he's crazy to go to Baylor, Baylor was never going to win again. And he said, didn't you tell me I was crazy to come to Houston? Houston <laughs> would never win again. And I said, yeah, but I'm really serious this time. Baylor has no prayer winning in the Big 12. And so I was wrong twice. What Art has done to Baylor, to bring Baylor into perennially now, one of the top programs in the country, is just shocking to me. And Baylor's taken well, good care of him and his coaches financially. He's one of the highest paid coaches in the country, as he should be. He and Bill Snyder and Howard Schnellenberger at Miami and Bill O'Brien at Penn State, those four have did four of the greatest coaching jobs in the history of college football. And, and Browse proved against North Carolina when he had, didn't have a quarterback that what a, just further proved what a great offensive coach he is. Don't get me started on their secondary. <laughs> and uh, I think whenever I hear anybody complain about Art or Baylor losing a game, I want to slap them around because they've been spoiled by winning. You know, to me, Art Browse does – no wrong. I remember being there in Waco for his introductory press conference, and it was quite remarkable, and you could almost feel uh, a different vibe uh, there at uh, Floyd Casey Stadium uh, when he was announced as the uh, new head coach. But, uh, John, we definitely appreciate your time today. And uh, before we let you go, we know that you're a movie buff and a member of the Screen Actors Guild. And I'm curious, with the Oscars right around the corner, which film is your pick for Best Picture? The Revenant's going to run away with picture, actor, DiCaprio win for the first time. The Revenant will win, and Arnatu, or how you pronounce it, director, I think he'll win for the second consecutive year. Do you have any films that you're working on coming up? I do not. If you guys uh, get on any, let me know. I'm always available. All right, perfect. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we will let you know. John, we know that you're uh, quite active on Twitter and also uh, on the radio in several locations throughout the country each week. Also, you've got your work on cron.com. Where can our listeners find you? Oh, gosh, I do 19 weekly radio shows around the country. and I do six in Houston on Sports Radio 610, two in Waco on 1560, and uh, Twitter is McLean, M-C-C-L-A-I-N, underscore on underscore, NFL, and I always need more Twitter followers. Guys, I really appreciate you having me on. I'm available just about any time you need me in Sikkim. All right, Sikkim. Thanks, John. We definitely appreciate it. Thank you, Thanks so much, John. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Sadly, the college football season came to a close this past week. However, the news cycle did not stop. As it was reported earlier this past week, the Big 12 was granted the right to host its own championship game, essentially deregulation. The other conferences approved this by a a vote of seven of two. Uh, The Pac-12 actually abstained. So what this means is that the Big 12 with 10 teams is not going to be required to expand to 12 schools, 12 teams, in order to host a championship game. Now what this also means is that any conference out there can host their own championship game as long as they meet one of two criteria. One, that they play a round-robin schedule, and two, that the number one and number two seed play each other in that championship game. 
Now, I know that we have differing opinions on whether or not this is a good move for the Big 12. Jeremy, I know that you went to Baylor. You went to a Big 12 school, so I'm going to start with you. What is your opinion on this, and do you think the Big 12, now that it has the right to host a Big 12 championship game in football, do you think they should do it? Honestly, Austin, I just don't think it's a good idea. Um, the, the, the Big 12 championship game uh, has a long history of keeping Big 12 teams out of the title game, at least during the BCS era. Um, and now that we have the option to have a title game, uh, I see this more often working against the Big 12 than working for it. Um, I really, I, I like the round robin schedule, even though I would have liked to have, I would like to have 12 teams in the conference. Having 10 gave us the opportunity to sort of avoid that title game, um, getting, uh, you know, being, getting left out of the playoff by way of a title game. I mean, and, and in the system, the way it could be set up now, um, Bowlesby has been a little uh, vague on how they would actually uh, put the two teams together in the end, but uh, there were several scenarios that were given when this announcement was made. You could have literally a repeat game uh, two weeks in a row if you have the number one and number two team playing each other at the end of the season. So essentially, not only does it guarantee a rematch, but it could be a very awkward and some would say unnecessary uh, end to the season. So I, I, I really don't think uh, this is going to work out well for the Big 12 in the long run. And I sort of wonder, um, now that the Big 12 has the option for it, is it sort of going to be obligated by the fact that we have the option? Let me clarify this. The Big 12 uh, presidents, commissioners, everyone, they're going to come together here in a few weeks, and they're actually going to decide whether or not they should host the championship game. Now, they can agree to do this at a later point, and they can actually host the championship game as early as 27. 27- as early as 2016. One thing to note is on that championship weekend, currently the Big 12 has three games slated for December 3rd, 2016. Baylor at West Virginia, Oklahoma State at Oklahoma, and Kansas State at TCU. Coincidentally, each of those teams share a bye week earlier in the season. So if the Big 12 wants to host that championship game on December 3rd, it's not really going to be an issue in terms of scheduling. Uh, the Big 12 can easily accommodate all six of those schools. But I'm not sure that there is a need for that 13th factor. Uh, you know, this past year, if Oklahoma beats Oklahoma State in two straight weeks, I'm not sure that does anything for the committee. It, it To me, I don't think it moves the needle necessarily. So when evaluating this title game, I think you have to realize or I think you have to ask one question. Does this give the Big 12 a better path to the college football playoff? Kevin, as someone that wants to see their Cougar program get into the Power Five, how do you see this potential championship game playing out? And do you think the Big 12 should do this? Well, I would love to see U of H in the Big 12 because I think they could be a very competitive program in what is a conference Um not at its best, certainly. Uh, it's been a rough couple of years, I think. Although Oklahoma was very good, but but Texas is not the program it used to be. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I don't see any possible conceivable way that UH is going to be in the Big 12. I don't think they want them. I think there are other conferences that are courting UH or considering U of H. So I don't I don't see that there's going to be a connection there necessarily. But from an outside perspective, I mean, just if you're talking dollars and cents, you got 25 to 35 million dollars tied up in a possible uh, conference title game. That's a, that's a fair chunk of change to walk away from. So there's a financial 
financial windfall possibility. Also, Oklahoma this year happened to be one of the top four teams in the country without a title game. But, I mean, you talk about making the road to the playoffs easier. You can make a much more convincing case if you do have that 13th game and you do win it, whether or not it's a rematch. So I think that it's a bad year if you're pro-title game just because of what Oklahoma was able to do up until they were in the playoffs. That was not their best work. But um, I think that it's a good idea. There's money to be made from it. I think that in other seasons where a team might not have as strong a case as Oklahoma without that title game, then um, there'd be more of a push for it, whereas right now they're more on the fence. But uh, there's certainly a lot of uh, a lot of stress and tension within the Big 12 that I'm enjoying watching from the outside uh, with David um, Boren talking about uh, the Longhorn Network and kind of uh, alluding to some of the... Um, nicer things that Texas has been able to accumulate for itself and the imbalance that's inherent in that conference. So it's been entertaining to watch from the outside for sure. David Bourne, speaking of which, made comments this past week saying that the Big 12, despite this vote, was still at a disadvantage. And primarily he was speaking at one thing. I think a lot of these were subtle tones directed down toward Austin and the Long Hard Network, which honestly has not been performing well since its debut. And uh, I think it's kind of funny that since the Longhorn Network debuted, uh, both the basketball and football programs have absolutely tanked. And I don't know that you can continue to show the 2006 Rose Bowl on repeat 24-7. Jeremy, I'm curious, is the Longhorn Network ultimately going to cause the demise of the Big 12? And is Boren, you know, is he trying to create a Big 12 network here, or is he actually trying to find a way out, you know, possibly to get to the Big 10? Or is he trying to force the conference's hand at expansion? That's a good question. Also, I think only David Bohr knows. I know that from his statements, he's not happy with Oklahoma's predicament in the Big 12. Um, I, as to whether or not the, the the Longhorn Network will actually ever come to an end, I mean, it has lost upwards of $48 million here for ESPN over the last five years since since its, its inception. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, for ESPN, that's sort of a drop in the bucket. Um, the network is projected to make a $2 million profit this year. Of course, that is yet to be seen. Um, I, I don't see the Longhorn Network going away. Um, if there ever was a Big 12 network, um, like other conferences have that sort of solidifies the conference, uh, it would sort of have to operate in parallel to the Longhorn Network. Uh, I, I don't see UT ever really giving that up. Uh, there's just too much money in it for them. And um, I, I, I just think it's something that the conference is going to have to live with. And it certainly um, is the big uh, <clears throat> elephant in the room when it comes to conference expansion. Well, uh, first of all, it's very interesting reading this article. They talk about the SNL Kagan, I think is where some of those numbers come from, $48 million lost in the first five years of operation for ESPN. Um, ESPN has claimed that the Longhorn Network has 20 million subscribers. Um, this media group claims that it actually has about 7.5 million. So it's amusing to watch ESPN try to cover its um, tracks, so to speak, as it's, uh, you know, basically trying to pump this network up. What I think is possible and what I've been reading a little bit about is that uh, the long, if, if UT is made a whole, which is, you know, $15 million a year, essentially until 2031, which looking back is such a ridiculous, unbelievable deal. But if there is some way to financially make restitution to them, then you could theoretically have a big 12 network kind of folded or the long network folded into the big 12 network. Some of the infrastructure is there. You keep a lot of the same staff um, and you have the possibility of, 
kind of cohering together because right now there's just a lot of unrest and uh, and it's basically caused by this albatross around Texas's neck and really not Texas's neck around ESPN's neck but it's uh, it is a black eye to the rest of the conference and it's maybe it may be a financial windfall for UT but it's still kind of highlighting how mediocre or poor they've been the past few seasons, uh, kind of putting them on a larger stage. So it's just, it's an amusing embarrassment for everyone involved, and it's really entertaining to watch. There are two key factors here with Texas. Athletic Director DeLostodds and President Bill Powers, who both played an instrumental role in you know signing this deal with ESPN, they're both gone. And I think that the new administration at UT is kind of sees the writing on the wall. I don't know that they want this instability. Um, I know that ESPN and Disney is actually struggling a little bit uh, in, in terms of so many people cutting cords and you know going with the Watch ESPN app. And so the network is actually losing money. So I wouldn't be surprised if ESPN comes to the new administration at Texas and says, hey, look, we want you to cooperate here. Um, but another factor to consider is the Big 12 has a partnership deal with Fox Sports. Texas has a partnership deal with ESPN. So there's an inherent conflict of interest here. And I'm curious how it's all going to shake out. And I think a lot of it is going to come down to this potential conference championship game and whether or not the Big 12 decides to expand. Do you think that this hurts the Big 12's odds of expanding quickly in the near future? Does this possibility of a title game actually make it less likely that they're going to add more teams in the near future? I think currently, yes. I think that there were a lot of people that were disappointed uh, that the Big 12 decided not to expand. I know several people in here in Houston uh, were disappointed. They were kind of hoping that the Big 12 would be forced to have a championship game with 12 teams and hoping that uh, U of H, after the facility upgrades and the, the success of the football program and the emergence of the basketball team, would get that call. However, a lot of reports emerged this past week that you know the teams that the Big 12 are eyeing right now would you know, potentially be UConn, Cincinnati, BYU. Geographically, I'm not sure they make sense, but what it comes down to is eyeballs and uh, TV money. Um, but right now, I think that the majority of the Big 12 is content at 10 teams. I mean, they're making more than $20 million a year just on TV rights alone. Uh, not many conferences out there can say that, and I'm not sure there's a team out there right now that brings in additional revenue to help the conference. So I think that the conference stays pat at 10 unless Boren threatens to leave for the Big Ten. I think if the conference was going to expand and add those two uh, other teams, they would have done it already. Um, I don't think any of the teams uh, potentially that the Big 12 has been looking at really have what the conference wants, um, uh, whether it be geography, uh, fan base, or, or, or some other issue. So uh, it's it, it'll be interesting to see what the meeting in February yields. You know, it's a pet peeve of mine when the number, the conference is called the Big 12, but it's got 10 teams. Like, that just seems like it shouldn't be allowed to happen. You should have to change the name if the number is reflecting your title and it's inaccurate. It makes it kind of hard to pitch sports sometimes to people who don't like sports because they're like, Big 12, it's got 10 teams in it. What is the deal with this? It's arcane and weird, and it's something that needs to be changed because it's like nails on a chalkboard for me. And it's not the Big 12 that has that issue. I mean, the Big 10 for the longest time had 11 teams, and they expanded to 12, and now they're at 14, yet they still stick with that name. Big 10. I don't know. It's interesting. At least give credit to Larry Scott and the Pac-12 from, you know, when they expanded with two additional teams in Colorado and Utah, at least they went from Pac-10 to Pac-12. So credit to Scott. You know, you were you had the foresight. You had the vision. We appreciate you still not losing your brand, uh, but, you know, still having a correct title. We appreciate that. But conference expansion, it's been an ongoing issue since 2010, and I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon. 
but it's something to watch, and we'll see what happens with the Big 12, whether or not they host a championship game, and if David Bourne uh, decides to create a little controversy in the conference. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. While we enjoy recording this podcast each week, sadly, we're not paid to talk. However, a friend of the show, Chris Grismer, whose voice you hear each week in our opener and during our transitions, is a voiceover actor, so we thought we'd bring him on for a unique segment. Chris, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Hey, well, glad to have you back, and we know the uh, the Broncos won on Sunday, so you're in a, a good mood? Oh, man, I'm, in a, I'm exhausted, but great. Had some heart palpitations, but... Oh, well. (laughs) Sports will do that to you. It will. For those people that might not be familiar with voice acting, what is it exactly that you do, and how did you get your start? Well, uh, voice acting is all around. I mean, a lot of people don't even realize it's a thing because you take for granted. I mean, anytime you hear an ad on the radio or when you're watching something on TV, there's generally a voiceover that will go with it. And I think most people think it's like, oh, they got Bill from accounting to take care of that for Chevy, but it's actually this profession of people who do it. Um, And, you know, there's so many different avenues to do it in that there's animation. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, any cartoons you've ever seen since you were a little kid, that's what they do professionally is they do voice work. Um, But it could also be uh, industrial narrations. It could be stuff like when you've watched a training video at whatever job you've taken where, you know, it's like how not to get your hand stuck in the soft serve machine. Now that you work for Brahms, all those things is recorded by <laughs> a guy who that's what he does. Um, and so for me, most of what I do is I do commercial work, um, which is great because it's usually really short form 30 second spots. I mean, think, you know, books on tape, is another form, and those guys are doing it for, you know, sometimes up to 20 hours, uh, but to actually record it will usually about be three times as long, because you have starts and stops and stuff, so. Uh, voice acting, there's just so many different ways to do it, and so many different mediums that call for it, and uh, with the proliferation of YouTube and online videos, I mean, it's really an expanding field uh, in terms of opportunities out there, but unfortunately it means a lot more people are getting into it, because, you know, Guys like yourselves, you you know, it's cheaper to buy mics and cheaper to do stuff at home. So it's a growing and evolving industry. With your voice acting work, tell us a little bit about some of the work that you've done. Like, are there any commercials that we've heard or uh, any games we've played where you might have done voice work? Absolutely. Um, So for a long time throughout the whole time that I was at at Baylor, I was the uh, voice for Outback Steakhouse. Uh, So that was my longest, most... Uh, you know, nationally recognized commercial work. Um, so whenever they do the campaigns that were like, no rules, just right. And you'd hear this Australian voiceover doing it. Um, and that ran, that was like six years that I did that. I was the voice for uh, Guinness Brewery. Um, if you ever saw those old commercials that were like, don't drink six beers at one time, brilliant. I wasn't either of those two talking heads, but at the end of every one of those ads, there's always a, like, a, you know, Guinness draft, best strife from the bottle. For more outtakes, visit Guinness.com. You'd hear an Irish thing at the end of it. Um, and so I was the voice for that. I was the voice for Singular Wireless, all their error messages before they merged and became AT&T again. Um, I did all the, not all the voices, but I did a lot of voices for uh, SOCOM Navy SEALs on PlayStation. That was my first foray into video game work. I've done work for Assassin's Creed 3, Resident Evil 6. Uh, one of the big things I'm doing now is some work for a game that's going to be coming out on Oculus. Uh, Oculus Rift and HTC Vive called Final Approach. Um, 
trying to think of what else. I mean, it's just across the... I was the voice for Keystone Light uh, before they started the Keith Stone <laughs> character. So I've, I've covered all the beer ads pretty well. Um, so yeah, you really classed it up there. Yeah, I know I do a lot of work for, with BP stuff through probably friend of the show, Bailey Eubanks. That's always exciting. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I've had my hand in every possible voiceover pocket you could think of. I did children's books. Uh, there's circumference, um, a night's math adventure, that series. If you ever are bored. It's on there. I can't say uh, that I've actually read that series. No. So, Lady Die of Amateur, go see Circumference. You will. It's yeah. It's all math puns. But <laughs> so yeah, it's all over the map. So I, I'm curious. Oh, and like I also did work. I did two characters for Family Guy as the other big, other big uh, claim. Oh no no okay hold on. Which characters for Family Guy did you do? So this has been a matter of some debate. Yes, uh, Detective Scrotes, and then also he was a in the Stewie Griffin, the Untold Story, and then uh, Ronald Reagan attacking a McDonald's. I've got to hear this, you Ronald. Did do Ronald yeah, Reagan? We've got okay. to hear. We've got to hear Reagan. Yeah, please, please do. Reagan smash, Reagan smash, Mister Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Reagan sleepy, Reagan sleepy. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> Oh my gosh! So, yeah, and that's, it's, uh, it, it's yeah. a scene of Ronald Reagan punching the wall out of a McDonald's. I believe. Yep, there you go. Oh, don't worry. He'll just tire himself out in yeah. a couple hours or so. Reagan sleepy. Well, Nancy, I don't quite remember. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> man. So, of the various voices and impressions that you do, what is your favorite? What's the most fun to break out in if you're just hanging out doing a voice? Um, you know, it really depends on the audience I'm with. I mean, I, I as Staten and J-Pax and anybody else that I went to college knows, I mean, I, I do it a lot and break it out a lot. And so, um, really just whatever the group wants. I mean, sometimes, you know, Stewie is always a, a favorite um, just cause everybody knows Stewie Griffin, but sometimes when I'm with an older crowd and I'll, you know, Woody Allen or Jackie Mason or with my parents, friends, they love that and they have no clue who the heck Stewie is. So, you know, it just, it totally depends. <laughs> I, I like all of it. I actually did when I was at Baylor, I did a, uh, speech for business students class. I, the, my freshman year, the entire semester, I pretended to be Australian. So for every speech I gave, <laughs> was about growing up in Melbourne and would <laughs> I was able to get out of class like I, I was able to go first and be like you know it's so nice you're letting me do this speech first I gotta get to the airport I'm flying back home it's the first time I've been back home since last year if you could let me go early that'd be great and like that's so weird you're leaving on a Tuesday in February but you know the seasons are different there so the toilet flushes backwards so it's totally cool and you know, I'd see people in Penland on campus, the cafeteria, and they're like, hey, the Australian guy. I'm like, I have no, oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, beautiful day. G'day, mate. Nice to see you. Um, totally forgot. Um, uh, where's the Vegemite? I can't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, where's this? So, yeah. Chris, where, where did you find out that you had this ability? You know, I don't really know. I can't really trace an origin. My dad always used to do it just kind of around the house. Like he would, he loved going to drive throughs and order in one accent and then pick it up from the window as another. 
Um, so I'll be like, <laughs> I would like to order something, not a cow. I would not do that. And then he'll pick it up and go, oh, thank you very much, doing a Russian thing. And he'll talk like he's from Moscow. And they're like, I'm so confused. And I thought that was hilarious when I was, you know, five, six, thirty. <laughs> um, and so I would just kind of do it to emulate him and to... I, I didn't really answer your question before, Austin, on how I got into it, um, but I used to do stand-up in high school, and I, I was terrible, and I would just try to be as offensive as possible, and people were like, your jokes aren't clever, and there was uh, an agent who was there who was like, hey, your material is horrible, but your voices are great. We would love to represent you for voiceover work, and I had no clue what it was, and so I just started getting you know a little local radio spots and doing the you know you're listening to 93.3 ktcl home of the rockies and just doing you know these little (laughs) local things and they just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and there you go so where does all this production happen do you have a studio at your house do you go to a studio or walk me through that sure um well now that so i'm from colorado originally and i had a real makeshift studio back there and it was just terrible and when I moved to, and I also had an agent in Denver, and so most of the work that I did there was through my agent, and I'd just go to recording studios, uh, you know, that the, whatever marketing team had put the ad together, they would, you know, buy the recording time at these studios, and it was great. Um, but now, in our house in Waco, we built a recording studio uh, and just transformed an old bedroom with a walk-in closet uh, and turned it into a fully professional recording studio. So it's great because I could just work from home, and because of the proliferation of the Internet and there are so many more avenues that, while well, yes, I, I have an agent in Austin, and so any work I've done for, like, Sony Entertainment Online or done for, you know, any of the gaming companies or the Assassin's Creed or Blizzard or any of those things. That's all through the agent. I can't I can't get that stuff on my own. But for all the things I do for, you know, companies around the world and I do stuff for all these Chinese companies that are, you know, send me scripts at three in the morning, I could just do it from home. And it's fabulous and it's not something that really you could have done ten years ago, um, at least, you know, on the consumer level. Um and so it's great. So I, I get sent scripts and I record them every single day that I'm alive. And when bigger, uh, you know, bigger stuff comes up, it's usually through my agent. And then I travel down to Austin a lot uh, to go record at studios down there. What is the craziest request that you've ever had? Craziest request? You know, the most grueling by far, um, I used to do a lot of mocap work, which is motion capture. Uh, and so I would do cartoon characters and think I did a lot of stuff for the this studio that ended up becoming the people making this Oculus Rift game. Um, but they do all the motion capture for like Madden and they do a lot for Halo and Bungie and all sorts of big, you know, gaming companies. And so I would wear a black skin tight it was terrifying to look at it was awful but this skin tight suit with a they would paper mache basically or fiberglass to my skull uh this hat that would they would glue to my head that had all these little markers on it and by markers i mean they're like little reflective tiny ping pong balls and i also had 38 of them on my face um and so as I move, it would pick up my eyebrows, my mouth, my everything. So they can build a character based on me that all of my actions will animate it in real time. 
It's not something like, all right, well, we got your motions. Now let's go build a character for the next three weeks. As I move, <laughs> these cartoon characters move with me. And so I did a pilot um, that we we're we kind of had an agreement with the people who produced the TV show Extra um, that it was going to be an animated version of Extra. And so I was going to be all the different celebrities like in the news. Um, and we're hoping to get on Comedy Central. And it got to the production phase and it never ended up, unfortunately, getting the final sign off from Comedy Central. And so but I would do these eight hour days in this mocap suit and with this thing glued to my head and I'd do that for, you know, five days in a row, eight hours of just being this trained monkey with balls on my face. Um, and it was, oh, it was brutal, brutal. It was so hard. In this field, I mean, are there guys that you look up to, whether it be PA guys or sports announcers or voiceover guys that you've heard in the past that are sort of role models for you to emulate? Because it's, it's kind of faceless, so I'm curious right. if there are guys that you, you know, try to pattern or model your career after. You know, yes and no. There are guys that I definitely have admiration for. I mean, obviously all the Simpsons guys, I mean, with Hank Azaria and Dan Castellaneta and, you know, Billy West, who's done every cartoon character ever from Ren and Stimpy to Futurama and just all over the map. And while I admire a lot of them, I'm just in such my own little niche. Well, it would be great if I got Pixar stuff and I was on Simpsons 2.0. I mean, that would be amazing and I would love it. Um, But I, I just have my own little thing that's different from what a lot of other people do. Um, and so I admire them, but I don't necessarily say, Hey, I want to pattern myself after your career as far as PA stuff. And I, I've done every single sport at Baylor, except for football, doing PA at some point in my life. Uh, and actually the guy who does the Broncos and the Colorado avalanche, his name is Alan Roach. And he's been the voice of the Super Bowl PA for the last 10 years. And he is the God of PA announcing. So he is one that I'm like, you, you do something I could never do. You are so vastly superior. Um, and, yeah, so he's another one I, I hold in high esteem. Now, Grace, with all that like hard work you were talking about earlier, whether it's, you know, uh, just doing voiceovers at 3 in the morning or strapping <laughs> stuff to your head, do you have any fans? Do you have people that uh, – do you have a fan page? Do you have anything? Um, you, you, do you ever sign autographs, anything like that? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I've <laughs> – I have a YouTube video that's about 120,000 likes. That's about it. Um, I'm I'm very low key, and I, I one of the things I like about the voiceovers is that it is a faceless. Uh, and I just enjoy doing it for fun, and so I've never pursued it to be like a oh I want to get my name known and I want to. Um, I mean that's that is so immaterial to me. I couldn't care less. I've had people in Waco, you know, that I didn't know who were like, "Hey, you're the voice guy. I know you. I saw you." You know, like Matt Howerton, former ATO guy, had done interviews with me about doing voiceover stuff, and then I all these random people would come up to me who saw it, and they're like, "Oh, hey, can I can you do this impression or you know sign this?" And it's like, ah, this is awkward. I don't like this at all. Um, <laughs> like i just want to be at heb by myself please don't do this um right so yeah it's it's i'm sure if i was totally committed to it and ran a facebook page and a twitter just for it and you know had a my own subreddit devoted to it or something that you know maybe (laughs) but that is the last thing on earth i want and you had mentioned no stalkers or restraining (laughs) yeah exactly 
you had mentioned that YouTube video, and that that's one of my favorite things. I actually shared that with Kevin a few weeks ago as I was you know telling him, all right, we got to bring this guy on the show. You had mentioned that you have more than 100,000 clicks on that, and you go through probably about five minutes of impressions, accents. I know we're kind of running short on time, and it's a little bit late on Sunday night when we're recording, but can you go through some of those accents and impressions? I'm sure our listeners will absolutely love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, let me try to think. I mean, so obviously the first one, uh, you know, the one everyone loves is uh, Stuart Gilligan Griffin. You know, he's a good... Uh, he's a good hey, Brian. Hey, Brian. Would you uh, would you shave my coin purse, please? So there's a there's a half dead fat guy and a dead fat guy. Just uh, just not going to talk about this, huh? Hmm. All right. Um. Oh boy, Daniel Duck. Oh, I used to do the voice of Donald and Mickey for Radio Disney uh, back in high school in Colorado, and uh, <laughs> oh boy. Um. So like a lot of it's doing basically in the video. You see me do a large part of like moving around the world, you know. So like I start with a bit of the UK. In Scotland, ah, Scotland and Ireland are completely different. Scotland, you've got a brogue. It's a lot choppier with your words. Now, if you're doing Irish, Irish is a lot more lyrical. It's kind of got a sing-song. There's a bit of a melody to it. Uh, je parle vu français, c'est pas de problème. Je speak French quite well. It is not a problem to parler français très vite, very fast. Uh, you know, I did the Australian thing earlier. It's one of my absolute favourites. Now, if you want to bring it a bit front in your mouth there, that's where you got New Zealand. You know, the Kiwis, they talk real front, you know. Brit, hi there, Brit. My name's Brit and Jermaine there. Um, now, say, I've been in Texas for quite some time now. This is four years I've done lived here, not Canton Baylor. Now, you got your Texas thing. Now, if you're from Scott, you know, New York. Let's do New York. You want to talk like you're from Brooklyn? You know, oh, my God, what are you doing? You're talking like an old Jewish lady? You know, Woody Allen, he's very neurotic and Jewish. He's always moving his hands. Back off, Christopher Walken. Hey, hey, buddy, watch where you're walking here, okay? Um... <laughs> You know, it's just the whole, there's a whole bunch of stuff. I don't that know. is brilliant. I'm, yeah. I'm applauding. That's, well, that's, that's terrific. Work. If I, if I had a list in front of me, I would have, could have, could have kept going. I, I mean, the to... fact, the, the fact that you could do that just off the top of your head, you know, without any preparation. I mean, we, we had no, we had no preparation. Uh, just, I, I, I'm, it's, 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 it's phenomenal. It's incredible. Oh, well, thank you. all right. I've had a lot of practice. We definitely enjoy you joining us on the podcast today and. For those people that you know might want to see more of your work or potentially reach out for uh, any voiceover work, where can they reach you? How can they get in touch with you? What is the best way to contact Chris? Absolutely. Well, I do have a, a, a website, voiceforanychoice.com, like F-O-R, voiceforanychoice.com. Um, and so you can check that out, and there's a link to email me or voiceforanychoice at gmail.com uh, is a great way to get a hold of me. Um, and I record everything usually, like I said, at my house. So turnaround time is, you know, I try to do it within 24 hours all the time. Um, so yeah, if you ever, you know, it, I do stuff for things super small to super big. I've done voicemails, you know, all the way up to doing, you know, the national spots. So, uh, there's not really any limit to what I will prostitute my out, prostitute myself out <laughs> for. Um, <laughs> yes, I am a, a willing and eager participant. We might have to bring you back on as a guest and hear more of these, uh, you know, comedic ways. But uh, Chris, we definitely thank you for joining us on the podcast today and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Hey, awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It was a blast. All right. That's Chris Grismer. You can check out his website, voiceforanychoice.com.
Closing time. Guys, I really enjoyed tonight's episode. We had John McClain on from the Houston Chronicle. Again, he's covered uh, the NFL for more than 35 years. Now, Kevin, I really wish you could have joined that conversation, but I know that Jeremy and I had a great time talking with the general and just hearing his insights, hearing the stories that he had to tell. It was definitely enjoyable. Also, the Big 12, definitely a lot of things happening there, uh, you know, with the the conference expansion, conference championship games, so definitely something to follow. Also, we enjoyed chatting with voiceover actor Christopher Grismer. Again, you can check out his content at Voice for Any Choice. Kevin, we had a few new reviews on iTunes this week. Care to share? Yeah, of course I would love to share. This is really the best part of my week. Uh, When it happens, last week it didn't happen at all, and I had a terrible week as a result. So thank you to the listeners, or in some cases, maybe guests. We'll see as I get into these. But uh, we have two new reviews, uh, five stars, of course. I'm not going to read a review if it's not five stars. But uh, this one's titled H-Town Holding It Down, which I like. Uh, has kind of a rap feel to it, by one James Helsher, who you guys may remember uh, as a guest on this show, actually, representing his band Race to the Moon. He was kind enough to leave her review, which is great guest etiquette, and I totally encourage that. But he said, very informative show, focusing on Houston sports, but digging into equally interesting takes on local musicians, politics, and more. So that's a terrific review from a terrific guest, and we appreciate that. And then we have one of my favorite podcasts, exclamation mark, by BDODS10, also one of my favorite podcasts, so we are alike in that way. Um, I've only been listening to the Weekly Brew for a little bit, but I've quickly devoured every episode. The past couple of weeks, the guys have been killing it. Definitely one of the best weekly podcasts out there. I agree, and thank you very much for that kind review, BDOTS10. You guys, these reviews are very important because it determines whether or not we show up in people's searches when they search for sports podcasts on iTunes. They want to hear sports news. Um, you know, These reviews are one of the metrics that iTunes uses to determine whether or not we show up. So please go to our iTunes page, subscribe, and then click ratings and reviews and leave us a five-star rating and review, and I will totally read it as I just did with those two. So great reviews there. We definitely appreciate the kind words. As always, remember, you can go to iTunes, subscribe, review, give us five stars, tell us what you like, what you don't like. You can also find us online at weeklybrewcast.com, and you can search for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at weeklybrewcast. Jeremy, Kevin, I definitely enjoyed this past week's show. We hope everyone else did. This has been episode 26 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. For my co-hosts, Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Weekly Brew. 